You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. And I'd like to welcome you to a special series today, the focus on diabetes. I am Dr. Danny Petrasic, your host. And with me today are two special guests. I have Dr. Lewis Philipson of the University of Chicago. Dr. Philipson is a professor of medicine and is also the director of the University of Chicago Comprehensive Diabetes Center. Welcome, Dr. Philipson. Thank you. Nice to be here. The topic today is, I guess the simplest way to put it is neonatal diabetes, which is at least has been believed for a long time to be a special case of type 1 diabetes. And I thought maybe we'd begin with you, Dr. Philipson. Maybe you could tell us a little bit, some you know, general background on type 1 diabetes and what was the thinking, let's say, several years ago before some of these new findings. Sure. Well, in general, type 1 diabetes is thought to be of an autoimmune etiology. So they're considered to be a T-cell defect, so the white blood cells of the T-cell family uh, for I would say to this day, unknown reasons attack the insulin secreting cells. And then sort of a lot of stuff falls out from there. But for a long time, pediatric endocrinologists realized that the diabetes that happens before the age of, say, six months at presentation, six months of age, is really a different sort of thing for a lot of different reasons. Recent research has shown that the kids who have diabetes at that early age have the low-risk or normal-risk HLA antigen, so that means that their immune system is not the ones that are associated with autoimmune phenomenon in general. And there's some other features of that early-onset disease that seem to be pretty different, although these young children do present in ketoacidosis. So it always had this different name of neonatal diabetes. So tell us maybe just a little more specifically, in the clinical presentation of neonatal diabetes, what were the features that are distinct, let's say, from what we think of as type 1 diabetes? Well, the etiology can be similar. So it's easier in some ways to see the similarities. You can have kids present in diabetic ketoacidosis within the first few days of life up until, say, about six months or so. But what is clear is that they don't have the antibodies for the most part. Now, there are some rare exceptions, but when I say antibodies, it has become state-of-the-art to test for several antibodies, the most important and generally useful being the anti-GAD-65, the GAD-65. This is an antibody against glutamic acid dehydrogenase, which has become the most useful indicator of autoimmune disease and autoimmune diabetes, and these kids are negative. So, for example, the C-peptide level in these children is also absent, isn't that so? For the most part, that's true. I mean, what they can have are maybe early on detectable C-peptide, but by the time they get diabetic ketoacidosis and soon after that, they're also C-peptide negative. And that can be like autoimmune diabetes too, although some of the more current sources say that, uh, like Dave Harlan at the NIH, that up to 10 or 15% of his type 1 autoimmune patients are still C-peptide positive, even some years out. Maybe you could give us a, just putting us inside your head, what were the initial clues that this disease was really going to be different, let's say from the clinical point of view, and then maybe you can tell us from the scientific and fundamental research point of view. Well, we have to really point to the work of Andrew Hattersley at Exeter in, in the UK, what's I think called Peninsula Medical School, that 
Andrew's team was really ahead of the game in sorting out that a particular ion channel mutation was at the heart of over half of all of these neonatal diabetes cases. So why that was interesting was because of the lack of autoimmunity and because in at least some families there was a very strong inheritance, in some cases dominant, that a genetic search for the specific mutations that could cause neonatal diabetes as opposed to an autoimmune cause was begun really around 2002-2003. And in part, that was because of the excellent registry that was available in the UK and other countries in Europe for kids with very early onset diabetes. So that early thinking led to a series of genes that were candidates. And one of them became this channel in the case of, say, of Lily, Lori's daughter, where this particular channel, which is the target for sulfonylurea drugs, and the channel is called the KTP channel, has two subunits. And mutations in those subunits were found to prevent the insulin-secreting cells from secreting insulin. So that was the background scientifically. And then around 2004, the Hattersley group showed that sulfonylureas, in fact, could block the channel and cause insulin secretion in some of these patients with neonatal diabetes. And furthermore, in that year, one patient could be transferred off of insulin. Unfortunately, this had the equivalent of sort of one hand clapping, if you will. I mean, that there was very little notification. And it was only until Andrew's group was here in Chicago and let us know about a paper they'd been preparing to be published in the New England Journal, where now they had over 50 cases where they had identified mutations in the gene called KCNJ11, one of the two critical subunits of this channel, as a cause of the neonatal diabetes. And that's when I also met the Jaffes. That's fascinating. Let me just kind of sidetrack just for a moment. The fact that the sulfonylureal drugs seem to rescue this type of diabetes and act on, at least in this particular case, on the specific potassium channel you described, makes one wonder about the type 2 diabetics. Is that type of therapy working in the same way? Well, it exactly is how that therapy works. So the sulfonylurea drugs have been shown since about the 1970s to cause insulin secretion in someone with beta cells, so a type 2 diabetic, by blocking this channel. And when the channel is blocked, there's sort of a Rube Goldberg kind of set of, of consequences. Potassium accumulates in the insulin-secreting cell. That causes the cell to depolarize. So now we think about insulin-secreting cells as if they were neurons or cardiac cells that fire. So these are electrically activated cells. So when the cell depolarizes, you have a series of events that allow calcium to get into the cell, and then another series of miracles happen, and then you get insulin secretion. So in fact, it's exactly how sulfonylureas work by targeting this potassium channel, which otherwise, in normal physiology, would be closed just by glucose metabolism. So the distinction between the type 2 diabetics and this one is that in type 2 diabetics, there probably is an existing normal secretion of insulin, and now we're just asking the system to secrete more? In terms of the drugs in type 2 diabetes, yes. 
So I, I describe it as sort of whipping the beta cell. And of course, when I was, I mean, just a few years ago, sulfonylurea is about all we had to treat type 2 diabetes. Now I would say because of the concern that sulfonylurea has eventually stopped working in type 2 diabetes, where insulin resistance is also a problem, sulfonylureas have dropped to maybe a third-line drug in type 2. What we're talking about, neonatal diabetes, sulfonylureas do not seem to lose efficacy over time. And there's a couple of patients that the Hattersley group have uncovered in, in Europe who've inadvertently been treated with sulfonylureas for 40, 50, or more years, and they still continue to work on people with these channel mutations. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Danny Petrasic, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Lewis Philipson of the University of Chicago School of Medicine, and we are discussing neonatal diabetes. And at this point, I just wanted to bring the conversation a little bit more towards something about, I guess, the New England Journal of Medicine trial or some of the clinical trials. So what was the situation once it was discovered that there's a possibility for rescuing some of these children? What took place next? As I said, we were able to hear about the series of patients, which was the largest series in the world to date, in, I would say, May or so of 2006. And what excited, at least me, is the possibility that we ought to be looking for these people very actively. So people with neonatal diabetes who could then have genetic testing to see whether their mutation was in principle treatable by oral agents and not by insulin. So the two things to keep in mind is that these in permanent neonatal diabetes, it's indistinguishable from type 1 diabetes clinically. And the second point is that most physicians are not in a position to make a diagnosis without thinking about it. And of course, it is very rare. So those three things come together. So the rarity is very, very important to stress at this point in the conversation because neonatal diabetes itself, of all causes, and this channel mutation is only one of several causes of neonatal diabetes, it's about one in a thousand of all cases of type 1 diabetes, so very rare. And when it comes to the incidence in terms of the number of live births, it's about the estimation is between 1 in 200,000 and 1 in 400,000 live births. So by comparison, it makes cystic fibrosis look like a common disease. I did read in one of the articles that there was an estimate of the percentage of neonatal diabetics that had some sort of, so had a particular or a specific mutation. I think it was the KATP, the channel mutation. Is that correct? Is it a high percentage? or It's very high. So almost half of them have a KTP channel mutation, of which about 90%, 80 to 90% of those are mutations in the KCNJ11 gene, and the rest are in the ABCC8 gene, which is the other protein that makes up the channel. The amazing thing is that most of those are responsive to sulfonylureas. So maybe you could just describe briefly the results of the first clinical trial I mean, the results are astounding, and our work certainly backs that up, and there have been numerous follow-up papers from different groups across the world. The amazing thing is that giving sulfonylurea drugs to people with the channel mutation form of neonatal diabetes results in an improvement in A1C, typically 
you know, someone might be in the 9% range as a child, then the A1C has become very close to normal into the 6-plus range, 6% range. And while that's happening, the incidence of hypoglycemia is reduced dramatically, and in some cases it, it doesn't happen at all. So you have sort of this quadruple benefit of no injections, decreased swings, almost minimal hypoglycemia, if any, and a dramatic improvement of A1C. So that's, I mean, you just can't beat that. That must be such a miraculous experience for families and physicians taking care of the patients. I'd like to thank Dr. Lewis Philipson of the University of Chicago School of Medicine, and we've been discussing neonatal diabetes. I'm Dr. Danny Petrasic, and you've been listening to a special series, Focus on Diabetes on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals.